and welcome to One Great History, where we talk about our favorite bits of Winnipeg history, both great and not so great. I'm Alex. And I'm Sabrina. Uh, it's been a little while since we last recorded. And that it's been like two weeks? Well, a little longer than usual, because I've been going through you've a had, whole... You've had a long, a long recovery period, hey? Yes, I've had the worst, world's worst wisdom tooth recovery period. I, I don't think that's possibly true. <laughs> Okay. I had a friend that sneezed their stitches out. Oh, no. Well, I didn't do that, but I did get dry socket and yeah. then develop gastritis from the painkillers. <laughs> and so I was in pain, but can't take painkillers, which has been great. Yeah, it sounded brutal. And I had a very lovely two weeks of napping and watching Law & Order. So I've been doing that also, but just hurting <laughs> while doing it. Yeah, I like my version better. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Which Law & Order were you watching original? Or? Uh, SVU, because it's the only one that's on mm. TV. Also, it's the only one with iced tea. So. Yeah, the iced tea is really the selling feature for <laughs> me. <laughs> he just says weird things and then like vanishes for most of the episode and then comes back. Well, it's like that John Mulaney bit yeah. that he does, right? Where it's like iced tea does not understand how serial killers work and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, I think he like he's kind of like a stand-in for the audience, right? He's like, yeah. how do we explain this horrible concept, which a cop should already know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, he's been, what, like a narcotics cop for 20 years? 21 years. Yeah. That's how long the show has been on for. Ice-T has been there for 21 years, and he's still surprised by everything. <laughs> the one I watched last week, he was talking about, like, protests and went, if that's going on outside, call me a homeboy because I'm staying home. <laughs> which is the most ice tea line of all time. I love that. That's my new motto. It's on every morning at 10 a.m., so that's what I've been getting up early to watch. <laughs> I'll make a coffee and watch my Law & Order, and I feel like a retired grandpa. That's the best motivation to get up while unemployed. <laughs> I love it. It's working for me. Uh, the other exciting news, I think, for Alex and I is that we've had two two big moments in our friendship and that Alex had to explain a pop culture thing to me. Oh, yeah. It's normally the other way around. That might be the first time that's ever happened. Um, I watched the movie Rosemary's Baby. Which I have not seen. And Sabrina Ooh. didn't know even what it was about. I get it confused with Kramer versus Kramer. I, <laughs> <laughs> I know they're not the same thing. Very different. But in my head, they're similar, so I never know which one is which. Yeah, but I've seen virtually no movies, so this was a big accomplishment for me. <laughs> Unprecedented for us, honestly. I did try and explain who Shaggy was to you once, and you got annoyed with me for trying. <laughs> of course I know who Shaggy is. Shaggy from Scooby-Doo or Shaggy the Singer? The Singer, obviously. I do, I, I do know both, though, to be clear. <laughs> and then also, Alex and I both watched a current piece of media and talked about it instead of just texting about Columbo for two weeks straight, <laughs> which is generally what we do. Which was Bly Manor. Yeah, which is a great show. It is excellent. But I feel like this episode will be nice because it's kind of back to basics for us because I feel like we've both talked about this topic a lot. Yeah, this is a real favorite favorite for both of us. We've both talked about it in previous jobs, too. Oh, excessively in previous <laughs> jobs. I worked into almost every tour I gave if I could. Yeah. So uh, in case you don't understand our uh, German title this week, our topic is If Day or the fake Nazi invasion of Winnipeg in 1942. Yeah, so this is a bizarre topic which is why we both like it so much it's very confusing especially i think today i know like people from out of town especially are really confused about why we tried to do this right so um we're gonna answer that question yeah we're gonna answer that question so we're gonna be talking today about um 
yeah, the Second World War. And usually this is not a topic that either of us are super into, actually. No, arguably, we both hate talking about World War II. <laughs> if Day seems to be the one big exception for us. Yes, and I think we're both more into, like, the home front generally. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but, like, there is kind of an interesting aspect to the war in general, I think, in Winnipeg. And to, like, any war that we've fought in, which is, like, we've always been so far away from any oh, yeah. war that we've ever fought in. And so the question is, like, what does it mean to be at war when you're not actually seeing the war? Mm -hmm. Right. And how do you make a population care about something that's literally on the other side of the world? The answer is if day. Right. So <laughs> if you're Winnipeg, you stage a fake Nazi invasion. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like the important thing to note before we get into if day itself is that if day was not Winnipeg's first encounter with Nazis in inarguably the first encounter was a lot more serious and a lot less fun. But it's worth acknowledging just in terms of, like, the difference a decade makes yeah, in, in our general, attitude. Yeah, in general, Nazis are not fun. No. <laughs> no. Let's go on record with that. <laughs> this is our hot take of the day. Nazis are bad. <laughs> uh, so if we go back just a decade before If Day in the 1930s, it's the midst of the Great Depression in pretty much everywhere in North America seeing a rise in anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Generally, it's because people are either looking for a scapegoat for what's gone wrong with the world or you're already anti-Semitic and, aha, right. a convenient launch pad for my awful beliefs. Yeah, I mean... Jews have been a convenient scapegoat for centuries throughout yes. history, but it's definitely ramping up. Especially, yeah, when there's times of, like, economic hardship. Suddenly mm -hmm. there's a person to blame. Yeah. So it's not like Winnipeg is the only place we see this happening, but across Canada there's a rise in nationalist parties, mm -hmm. which are Nazi parties, just to be very clear. We'll call a spade a spade. Yeah, and this is, I think, kind of a rough history to confront and one we, like, as a society, don't like talking about, I no. think. Because, you know, we fought against the Nazis in the war. And, and we want to be like, we were always on the good side of that. But we very much weren't. No. So come 1933, when German's National Socialist Power uh, Party comes to power, led by Adolf Hitler, suddenly there is sort of a spokesperson and idol for all of the racists across Canada. Oh, right. So there's a sort of influx of hate groups, including the Canadian Nationalist Party, which is led by William Whitaker. Hmm. And Whitaker is, I would say, an all-around bad dude, because he's also a former KKK leader oh, before he moved into nationalism. So he published um, an anti-Semitic newspaper, and if you went to one of his party meetings, he had a framed photo of Adolf Hitler as the guest of honor. There was really no mistaking where his sort of beliefs were lying. But um, after 1934, there was a big amount of public outrage, I think, where Winnipeg differs from some other Canadian cities is that we had a huge Jewish immigrant population. Yeah. And especially in the North End, a huge leftist population. So they weren't quite as willing to let some of this fly. Mm. So a lawyer, Marcus Hyman, actually pushes to introduce hate speech laws in Manitoba. Okay. And they pass. And Whitaker can no longer publish his newspaper because mm. it's hateful. Okay. It's one of the first laws of its kind actually in all of Canada. That's right. pretty cool. But Whitaker then takes to the streets. Because you can still gather and yell whatever you want on a street corner. That's right. still legal. So he plans to have a rally in Market Square, which is where the public safety building used to be. Mm -hmm. It's right behind City Hall on June 5th. And he's got around 100 supporters who are supposed to turn up. So it's 100 Nazis in Winnipeg. They're going to turn up and try and gather members. What they did not realize is that Winnipeg's anti-fascist league also showed up. Excellent. Earlier and with more members. <laughs> so Whitaker had about 100 people with him. The anti-fascist league had about 500. Excellent. And a full-on fight breaks out. Oh. It's called the Battle at Market Square. And uh, 
Whitaker and his friends got the daylight speed out of them. <laughs> it didn't work well for them. And after this, the Nationalist Party splinters and weakens, and they don't really gain a foothold in Winnipeg. But what's interesting about all of this is that if you read the papers of the time, their sympathies tend to lie more with Whitaker than with the Anti-Fascist League. Interesting. The Nazi Party is treated as a credible party in Manitoba that's valued and should be like, we should hear their opinions, we should see what they have to say. So the Free Press interviews Whitaker and isn't critical of his beliefs. Huh. And you see that change very rapidly come 1939. Right. I mean, even when we become, of course, like vehemently anti-fascist and anti-Nazi during the war, very little of it seems to surround like helping the Jews, right? Oh, no. Canada still remained wildly anti-Semitic throughout the war. It's just that now Hitler is the enemy. Yeah. So the uh, Nationalist League sort of peter out come 1939, because that's when Hitler and the German army invade Poland and war breaks out very quickly. So Hitler invaded Poland on September 1st. Within a matter of days, Britain was at war and Canada joined the war on September 10th. So within like a full week, mm-hmm. suddenly the Nazis were our enemies. Wow. Which means they stopped, you know, treating people like Whitaker quite so well. The Whitaker had died two years before. Right. Thank God. <laughs> he was awful. But with the war comes um, sort of the whole country getting swept up in it, right? Everyone gets involved for good or for bad. There's a lot of government efforts like victory gardens to grow crops for the troops or like meatless Mm. Mondays where Mm -hmm. you don't eat meat so more meat can go to the troops overseas. There's rationing policies enacted. But the crux of all of this is that war is expensive. Yes. And you need to fund it somehow. Yes, you do. And you need to make people take it seriously. Mm -hmm. So you see stuff like mock battles coming up. Yeah, and so... Like, when I first heard about If Day, I don't think I realized that mock battles were a thing more generally. Yeah. I mean, like, we definitely see, like, historic recreation battles. Yeah. Like, um, during Gimli's Icelandic Festival, they do, like, or, like little... all the Civil War reenactors yeah, in the States. Yeah, like, Civil War reenactors, which is kind of weird, but, you know. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway, but, yeah, so this sounds insane until you realize that this was actually not the first mock battle, even in Winnipeg during mm. World War Two. Um, earlier ones, though, were on a smaller scale than mm-hmm. on If Day. Um, so one in particular came um, less than a year earlier, actually. Uh, June 4th, 1941, there was a half-hour blackout throughout the city between 10 and 10.30. So a blackout just means that um, all citizens are asked to turn out all of their lights. You're not supposed to be driving around. Mm-hmm. Um, you're supposed to draw your curtains. So they played warning sirens and set off firecrackers to emulate the sounds of war. Uh, Planes dropped flares as well. And at the end of the exercise, thousands of Winnipeg soldiers um, liberated the city. Yeah. Um, There's kind of a funny article in the Tribune where they call out this one guy for lighting his cigarette. Oh, no. Yeah. So they say um, basically that it was all dark but that you could see this one guy's cigarette and that these are where like the first fatalities of war come from they yeah. like they were very serious about calling this guy out um apparently there was a casualty list of 30 during the mock <laughs> <laughs> was it just all people who wanted to smoke in their homes during uh, the blackout <laughs> apparently women became hysterical and fainted <laughs> oh, so that's a casualty then yes that's a casualty okay um three soldiers received gunshot burns Okay. Um, this okay. is this is a little this is a genuinely not great. Uh, one woman had a heart attack. Oh no! And then a man had an epileptic fit. So yikes! Yeah. So um, apparently people were very freaked out by this yeah. practice blackout. Um, but they happily reported that there had been no crimes. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> 
Someone had a heart attack, but no one was robbed. So, yes. like, really, it all balances out. But, yeah, people were, um, yeah, quite kind of convinced by it, I think. And uh, it was also a training exercise in some yeah. ways. Like, I think this one was less kind of publicity-oriented. Yeah. And almost more of, like, how would we defend a city? Hypothetically, Hypothetically. Yeah. And events like that were also used to sort of foster public support in certain ways, especially when you look at the prairies were very far removed from what's going on in Europe. So, like, the threat of a Nazi invasion in Winnipeg seemed very slim. Yes. If you're on either coast, there was still, like, some vague threat. Like, you could see submarines, and there was a higher risk for sure. But for us in Manitoba, it didn't always feel that way. So it could be tricky to garner public support and to raise funds, especially. Yeah, and to get people to take it seriously, like that guy lighting a cigarette, or the Tribune is also complaining about people during that previous blackout, sort of just, like, driving around and yeah. not listening to instructions. Which I'm sure would be a huge problem anytime you try and do a citywide blackout even yes. today. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, of course the important thing here is also like you say, the funding. Yeah. So, um what they were trying to do with If Day and with these earlier mock battles as well to some extent is to sell victory bonds. So victory loans have a few different names. They're also victory loans or war bonds or mm-hmm. dozens of other things depending on when you're writing and who you're talking to. But essentially what they are is a piece of paper you can purchase from the government, often at a place like a bank. And then you hold on to that scrap of paper. When the war is done, you can get your money back with interest. Right. So some people can theoretically profit off of war bonds. Right. Not everyone can. Most people don't. But there's still like that slight chance. But any money you use to buy a war bond is going to go to fund the war effort. So you see um, fundraising drives across World War II, but victory loans had been a thing since World War I. So they mm-hmm. weren't like an unfamiliar concept to us at the time. Right. So, I guess probably it's just like the first time we're like voluntarily collecting money to support yeah. wars and not just like <laughs> seizing crops from peasants. Yeah. That's, I think, a more like publicly oriented system that seems friendlier. Yeah. It's a charity. You're giving us money. It's, right. We're not stealing from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in Canada, there were 10 victory loan sales drives across World War II. And probably the most important one for us is in 1942, in February. The campaign began on on February 16th and continued until March 9th. And each province in Canada was given a fundraising target. So Manitoba was supposed to raise $45 million in victory loan sales. It's a lot of money. It's uh, $620 million, according in 2011. Oh, wow. And that would include uh, $24.5 million from Winnipeg alone. Wow. And and what's the population of winnipeg at this point i actually don't know offhand no i don't know either i but 500 600 000? i would say less probably maybe i don't yeah. know which has grown since then yeah. but yeah it's not like a big city compared to places like toronto yeah who i assume had bigger fundraising drives for sure and i think i think i read that canada was looking to raise something like 600 million overall oh yeah it was a ludicrous amount so we yeah. weren't like in the grand scheme yeah that much money wasn't coming from us but it was still a lot for the province yes. to raise and Victory loan drives were about as much about publicity as they were about actually fundraising. Mm -hmm. Public morale played a huge role in how you would raise money for this. So they had to really walk this fine line between being too confident or being too pessimistic. Because you say, like, ah, the war is going to be easy. We're going to win right away. Mm. No one will give you money. Of course. But similarly, you say, well, we're all going to die. No one's going (laughs) to give you money. (laughs) So there's a really fine line you have to walk in saying, we need your money to help. And then we will succeed. It's similar to, like, political campaigns in that way. Yes. Very much so. But then there were sort of, like, rules where you weren't supposed to announce if you would hit your target early. Okay. Because if you hit your target early, who's going to give you more money? Right. And if you got, like, a big chunk of donations, don't announce it. 
Because people would often say stuff like, oh, they've got loads of money. Who needs me? Right. And um, this was a big deal throughout the war. Like, looking through the Tribune, there are updates on victory bond sales, like, nearly every day. Oh, it's a huge thing. And during a countrywide sort of sales drive, they would really rack it up. It's basically like a big festival. So in 1941, their victory loan drive included mock battles, like you were talking about. And then also stuff like parades and contests. Right. I read there were also um, fireworks and singing at the ledge one night. So very patriotic, which is kind of the point of it, right? They're trying to foster a sense of sort of Canadian identity, too, in all of this. Right. Um, There was also apparently a cannon at Portage in Maine that was fired off daily. um, (laughs) One for each million raised across the province that day. That would have scared the bejesus out of me. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I find all the stuff about fireworks and cannons kind of interesting, because surely there are... You know, by 1942, some soldiers, at least, who are coming back because they're wounded or whatever. Or who survived World War One, Or who survived, yeah, or who survived World War One, and maybe don't want to hear a cannon blast. <laughs> but uh, No, we're celebrating. We're going to fire a cannon guess, on the main know, streets. We weren't really dealing with PTSD so well in those <laughs> no. days. So in World War II, it was the uh, Greater Winnipeg Victory Loan Committee who was in charge of organizing all of this. And they were led by Chairman D- John Draper Perrin. And he was um, a local guy who'd made his fortune in mining and then also campaigned for the war effort over the years. Hmm. And he was also, for what's worth, um, in charge of the Canadian Red Cross's Prisoner of War Parcels Committee in Winnipeg. So in Winnipeg, they parceled some, they packaged something like um, 2 million and 600,000 parcels for prisoners of war. Wow. Which is a lot going out. But the committee on the whole was mostly Winnipeg elite. It was people who could afford to take time off of work or who yeah. weren't going to war, who could sit down and talk about fundraising initiatives. Right. I think a lot of like upper class women were involved in things like that. Yeah. Uh, for the Victor Loan Committee, it was members from like Monarch Life and James Richardson and Sons. Mm-hmm. So like a real Winnipeg who's who. And you can tell they have marketing experience because of how they talk about planning if day. Because mm. they actually have part of their report for how they were going to plan if day oh. and their goals cool yeah so to properly reach the individual the work of the public relations committee must make the man the man and woman realize that our way of life can only be retained through personal sacrifice in previous loans the thrifty people bought bonds because they had savings to a limited extent people have purchased war savings certificates through salary deduction now people must be sold on the idea of reducing their personal standard of living in order to buy bonds at the same time to release their available savings bank deposits for purchase of bonds The most difficult task before us seems to be in the field of promoting commitment of current earnings of the large mass of salaried employees and wage earners to buy victory bonds on deferred payments. This is grim business, and the Public Relations Committee face up to it as such. No ordinary publicity measure would meet this need. We therefore propose to develop the theme of freedom throughout the period of this campaign. Successive events will be devoted to each element of freedom as we know it in turn. Schools, churches, business, government, labor, sport, all the channels of democratic activity will be appropriately promoted on a scheduled day. And the best way to do all of this was if day. Hmm. That's the plan for this. Right. I mean, I guess I had never really thought before about how difficult it would be to market something like war bonds because effectively you're selling people nothing. I mean, yes, there's eventually you'll get a little payback, but I'm sure it's not a huge profit. And in the meantime, like the great depression has just ended. Yeah. And, it's still not easy to make money. Right. But what's crazy to me is they're saying, like, not just give us money, but, like, take down your standard of living to give us money. Yes. Which is a much harder sound. Like, if you have a spare toonie, give us that. It's 
give us your next paycheck. Like we actually want people to give us not just like what they can, but like a significant amount yeah. of money with every paycheck that they get. Yeah. Which is wild to me. So they were right that no ordinary marketing tactic was going to work for this. So this is sort of where the idea of If Day begins, because it really is meant to promote the idea of freedom in Canada as we know it. Mm -hmm. So the committee actually rented up volunteers, and they rented Nazi uniforms from Hollywood. (laughs) They would then repaint Canadian tanks and planes with Nazi insignia, and people got to work giving advance notice to those who would need it. Right. Namely, Americans south of the border. There was a very real concern that if Americans found out there was any sort of Nazi activity in Winnipeg, they would be very quick to invade us. Yes. So the Americans knew in advance. Some Winnipeggers did not. We'll get to that later. Yeah. So that was one of our kind of big questions was like, were people expecting this? And we can talk a little more about that later. But like one thing that I noticed looking through the newspapers is that in a for a couple of days leading up to the day, there are warnings about if day, but most of the headlines are just about like a new victory bond drive, yeah. which I'm sure you would see all the time in the papers. Yeah. I could easily imagine just overlooking that. So if you had missed the papers or if you like many of us today aren't familiar with if day, here's what you would have woken up to. Right. So um, at 7 a.m. the blackout started. Um, so sirens sounded which meant that people were asked to turn out all of their lights. Uh, Street lights would have been extinguished. Um, Of course, it's February, so at 7 a.m. it's dark. Um, RCAF planes, which of course had been temporarily painted um, to look like Luftwaffe planes, um, went overhead. They dropped flares, which really would be quite frightening. Oh, yeah. Um, And anti-aircraft guns shot blanks at them from below. Um, Sporting clubs stood on the roofs of buildings and shot (laughs) into the air which seems legitimately dangerous actually yeah like they're just kind of shooting into nowhere well also there are planes right yes there are people flying around also so i as far as i know they weren't shooting blanks either but i hopefully i mean (laughs) presumably presumably they were were being safe in some way or another also presumably bullets had a better use not being shot randomly into the sky during the war (laughs) yes this is true um there were fire trucks about um this is kind of fun eaton's replaced its plate glass displays with shattered glass oh yeah so usually they'd have these kind of nice displays but they just like put in broken glass i guess instead there's some employee who had to go around to remove presumably they took the old sheet glass out because it'd be so expensive to replace yes and then put in shards of glass i don't know someone gets up at four in the morning to do this in preparation yeah but eaton's actually advertised that they were doing that which is kind of funny huh um, people on the streetcars going on their way to work, um, were hassled <laughs> by people in Nazi uniforms who would, uh, check their papers, demand mm-hmm. who, to know who they were. Um, apparently they were told not to get physical with anyone. Um, so people weren't really sort of bothered in that way, but just sort of harassed. Bothered in other ways. Yes. Just sort of annoyed, not really, you know, hurt. Some of the troops were also just sort of like standing around. Yeah. Um, especially out in, like, the suburbs, like, Mm -hmm. um, down on Henderson Highway, I read some of them were just sort of marching around. (laughs) Um, and then, uh, the Nazis began attacking. The defense was done, uh, sort of like a ring around the center of Winnipeg, and it was planned to last two and a half hours. Um, so it was a ring slowly shrinking. So this was, again, partly a training exercise, Mm -hmm. because this is the way a real defense would have been done, so in a ring to protect the most vital parts of the city center and slowly shrinking as they were pushed back. 
So the Canadian troops did sort of get, like, training experience out of this. Yeah, definitely. Because the uh, people playing the Nazis weren't members of the military. They were all volunteers. Right. So they had found somewhere around 3,000 men from the young men's section of the Manitoba Board of Trade. And some of them really committed to their idea of being enemy soldiers. Oh, jeez. And you can tell because they used face paint to add scars to their faces. <laughs> they dressed up for this. And one of the members responsible for planning if day, George White, who was actually a prominent local actor at the time, got into character as a Gestapo agent. Jeez. So everyone really committed. One of the things that's kind of funny is apparently the uniforms that they had rented were not warm enough. Oh. Um, I've read that the temperature that day, every article I read said a colder temperature, I swear, like <laughs> progressively colder, but anywhere between um, 14 below zero and eight below zero. So cold, um, no matter how which, you look at it. Possibly, and probably Fahrenheit at that point, right? Yeah. Where we, I don't know if we had switched to metric I yet. I don't know yet. So. And counting windshield. Yeah. Either way, it was cold, and they were wearing Hollywood Nazi uniforms. Which are not made for actual daily use. Yeah. So it was a little chilly. Yeah. But as the fake Nazis begin to invade, they actually have engineers simulate the destruction of bridges, because this is an actual war tactic. You want to slow down the forces. Right. You slow down their access points. That's pretty intense. Yeah. So nine of Winnipeg's bridges which would include Norwood, Main Street, Osborne, Maryland, St. James, Provence, Elmwood, or Elm Park, Louise, and then the Redwood Bridge were all destroyed. And what that means is they set off uh, dynamite flares near the bridge, but then used coal dust and smoke generators to make it look like they had been blown up. Yeah, again, if you didn't know this would ha- was happening, that's horrifying. So there is actually a story about a girl who lived sort of closer to the outside of Winnipeg, whose family didn't read the paper. Right. And she got up that morning and her mom said, go buy us milk, go downtown and get some. And she had to walk there and got to oh, a no. blown up bridge guarded by Nazi officers <laughs> and had to deal with that. I imagine she went home and her parents did not believe her. Uh, she went out and bought her milk and then went back home. Oh. <laughs> she committed to her task. Jeez. Which you got to give her credit for. That's funny, though, because apparently um, the Tribune seems to have been a little angry at people who were doing things like that, who were just like out and about doing their daily chores. I mean, like... This is, by the way, it was like, what, a Tuesday? Something like yeah, that? Yeah, middle of the week. Middle of the week. Totally normal day. If you didn't know what was happening, yeah. you would just go about your day. Trying to work. I always think about, because my family grew up outside of Winnipeg. We were all farm families who didn't necessarily all speak English and didn't get regular paper deliveries. Right. But sometimes my trips to Winnipeg to go, like, go to Eaton's for a shopping trip or go to, like, look at tractors at Massey Ferguson or John Deere. Yeah. Imagine being someone from, like, Low Farm, Manitoba. You come to Winnipeg for a day. <laughs> And you see all of this, and you go home and you tell your family, and the next time you go in, it's gone without a trace. Okay, so apparently there was a guy from Alberta who was just driving through and saw this. (laughs) It's very confusing. Yeah, I mean, I think he figured out probably that it was staged. I don't think anyone really thought that, like, the Nazis are here, but it would be confusing. Well, to figure out why people were pretending in the first place would be just incomprehensible. Yeah. But this whole battle only took a couple of hours. By, like, 9.30, it was done. The Nazis had completely overtaken Winnipeg, and they had finally reached Winnipeg City Hall. Yeah, so um, City Hall is occupied by men in Nazi uniforms, as are Eaton's. I don't know why Eaton's is playing such a central role in... Oh, they're committing. They are committing, though, to this if day. Um, The Legislative Building, as well, and the HBC Building um, are all occupied. Um, and several prominent Winnipeggers are, uh, arrested, sort of mock arrested, (laughs) I suppose. So, uh, John Queen, who was the mayor at the time, um, and also a prominent, uh, labor, labor activist, 
um, several aldermen, the city clerk. Feel bad for the clerk. I mean, <laughs> why him of all why people? Uh, the premier as well, Premier Bracken, uh, the lieutenant governor, and a number of ministers were all arrested. Also, um, some Norwegian diplomats. Yes, and a diplomat as well, um, apparently by a monocled German officer. <laughs> I wonder if it was George White, the actor who was playing the Gestapo agent. <laughs> I think, I feel like it might have been. Yeah, so the Norwegian minister, I think, must have been in on it because he gave an address later in the day. Yeah. But they're all uh, arrested and taken to Lower Fort Gary. Which I guess makes sense for like a holding cell. Yes. They also tried to arrest the chief of police, didn't they? And had some yes. trouble with that. Yeah, so they had planned to arrest the chief of police, but the Nazis were actually late. <laughs> They were supposed to show up at something like 1030 in the morning. And by the time they got there, it was actually lunchtime. So the police chief had left on lunch. (laughs) And so the Nazis just went around, kind of ransacked the place, you know, threw their papers on the floor and such. Do you think the chief of police had to sit there and wait all morning, waiting to be arrested? Waiting for the Nazis to arrest him. (laughs) What a weird day. Um, Yeah. The mayor, uh, though, was replaced by Colonel Eric von Nuremberg. Yep. Very on the nose name there um newspaper vendors had their papers taken we'll talk a little bit more about the newspapers later later um but also they went into a couple of workplaces um the great west life assurance company which of course we still have here in the city the employees um were kind of ousted from their tables during lunch Uh, a couple of fancy apartment buildings were looted Mm mm-hmm um, like I said earlier, some of the buses or streetcars were uh, stopped to search passengers. It says that one man was struck to the ground. I feel like that might just be like either that was planned or... Or one volunteer got carried away. Maybe. maybe. I'm not sure. Though I have a fun anecdote about the Great West Life uh, oh, invasion yeah. also. Because basically they went there to steal the employees' lunches. <laughs> they did like an old high school bullying tactic, essentially. Right. But they were all running late. And things were behind. <laughs> So the volunteer soldiers get there and they're meant to enter and steal lunches, but there were photographers on the scene all day taking pictures of all this stuff. Okay. And they kept making the volunteers do reshoots of photos. (laughs) So after the third try, one guy complained his potatoes were getting cold. (laughs) And then they all had to leave because they had to go to the legislature. None of them could eat lunch after spending like probably a full hour trying to steal lunch. Trying to steal lunches. It just didn't work. Yeah. I mean, definitely some of this is just for the kind of photo shoots and the the filming yeah like with the ransacking of the apartment buildings or even like stealing other papers there's a photo of i think jack kirby who wrote for the free press who's selling papers and they've kind of like got them both by both arms they're roughing up a little bit but it's clearly just like for fun yes um there was also a reverend who was apparently arrested right um, yes because he resisted the sign they were putting on uh the church which uh forbade um worship there Okay, uh, there's, um, we'll get to this in a little bit, but there is newsreel footage of Ifte that we'll yeah. talk about later. And do you remember what they say about the church in there? No. There is no room in the new order for God. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also apparently the Patriotic Salvage Corps served drink to bombed out victims. Huh. I don't know where they found these non-existent bombed out victims, <laughs> but apparently some people got hot drinks, which is nice. Hey, there's something. So with all of that, Part of this was to simulate life under sort of a German regime. So in the paper, they put in place new rationing policies. The Canadian government was already rationing, but you get a ticket saying, like, here's your amount of beef you can buy for the day. Bring this to the grocery store. It was essentially to stop hoarding and to make sure troops got what they needed. But 
under the German policy or the fake German policy, things got much stricter. So some of the newly rationed items included chicken, because specifically chicken necks looked like the neck of Winston Churchill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They also banned coffee and then soap was rationed to half a tablet of soap per month. And milk could only be sold to children under five years old. Oh, okay. Do you, uh, cause five-year-olds can't buy milk. No one can get milk. Right. Oh, I see. <laughs> it's very strange. I think a five-year-old could buy milk. Probably. You Maybe. have to like send them in on their own. Yes. <laughs> with a little toonie to buy milk. But essentially it was to show that life would get harder. Right. With Nazi policies. And they would also change the name of some prominent Winnipeg locations. Mm-hmm. So the city itself was renamed Himmlerstadt. Which, in case you're unfamiliar, is named for Heinrich Himmler, who mm-hmm. was a member of the SS who was actually in charge of the extermination camps. Right. Which means he is directly responsible for the death of some over 6 million Jews, specifically. Yeah. And then, like, 200 to 500,000 Romani people and millions more. This is one of the things about If Day, is the tone is... Joking. Impossible to place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, clearly it's meant to be funny. But also frightening. Because, yeah... Himmler's not a good guy. He's very scary. <laughs> yeah, super scary. But there is definitely a like joking tone to this as well. And we will get to... Very quickly, in fact. Yeah. So um, Portage Avenue was named Adolf Hitler Strauss. So Adolf Hitler Street. Mm-hmm. And then they also had sort of German translations on bus transfers saying like, you must stand in the presence of a German officer. So if a fake Nazi got on the bus, you all had to stand up. Huh. Which would have been awful. Yeah. <laughs> Especially on a February day in a streetcar. Not the most stable. And then also, if you were to, say, go and buy some milk or some bread, you might just get a fake Reich mark. Right. Because they're giving out fake currency. (laughs) Hopefully they'd give you your your real change, too. I would hope so. But, like, who knows? Yeah. No one has said. No. But on the Reich marks, we're actually a plea to purchase victory loans. Hmm. So, like, if you got the fake change, you'd understand kind of what was happening. Right. But... Basically, everyone involved was sort of having a field day with making minor changes to the city. And one of our newspapers got very involved with IFTA, which is the Winnipeg Tribune, whose name got its, whose name was changed. So instead of the Winnipeg Tribune, it was now Das Winnipeger Lugenblatt. Huh. Or the Winnipeg Lies Teller. Yeah. <laughs> so the paper was a mix of um, just actual German, poorly translated English, with the implication being that the people who were writing the paper now didn't speak English that well. Right. So it's all a little faulty or um, highly censored articles. And the joke here was that the German army didn't have time to write their own articles. So they just took what people had written before and blocked off most of it. Yeah. And the front page featured a very large announcement, which read, This territory is now a part of the Greater Reich and under the jurisdiction of Colonel Erich von Nuremberg, Gauleiter of the Fuhrer. No civilians were permitted on the streets between 9.30 p.m. and daybreak. All public places are out of bounds to civilians, and no more than eight persons can gather at one time in any place. All organizations of a military, semi-military, or fraternal nature are hereby disbanded and banned. Girl Guides, Boy Scouts, and similar youth organizations will remain in existence, but under direction and control of the Gauleiter and Stormtroops. All owners of motor cars, trucks, and buses must register at the occupation headquarters will be taken over by the Army of Occupation. So give up your cars. <laughs> And each farmer must immediately report all stocks of grain and livestock and no farm produce may be sold except through the office of the Commandant of Supplies in Winnipeg. He may not keep any for his own consumption, but may buy it back through the Central Authority in Winnipeg. Sounds more Soviet. A little bit, yeah. And all national emblems, excluding the swastika, must be immediately destroyed. Each inhabitant will be provided with a ration card and food and clothing may only be purchased on presentation of this card. 
The following offenses will result in death without trial. Attempting to organize resistance against the army of occupation. Entering or leaving the province without permission. Failure to report all goods possessed when ordered to do so. Or possession of firearms. No one will act, think, or speak contrary to our decrees. Published and ordered by the authority of Eric von Nuremberg, Gallleiter. And later on the paper, the tone gets a little lighter, and there's a larger section about uh, German humor that I'll let Alex read. And I will note, if you read the actual article, it's kind of hard to read because it was poorly translated English. Yeah, so I'm going to read it without that. Also, not in a German accent or anything. (laughs) Oh, Um, man, bummer. Also, please, no one soundbite me saying Heil Hitler. (laughs) Oh, it says Heil Hitler a lot. I type it up and it felt uncomfortable. Yeah. So uh, this is it. Heil Hitler, is, it is with great satisfaction that the name of this column has been changed. So has its writer. It is good. All citizens will think it is good. Or else. Before the present advance of culture came to Winnipeg, this column was known as the Tribune Trumps, a foolish name associated with card games that is no longer agreeable to the new order. Uh, so just to clarify for a second, the Tribune Trumps is a part of the newspaper that is usually for like jokes and little stories and stuff. Yeah. Uh, instead, we have Trumpeter, a name associated with martial glory. Heil Hitler. Instead of the fat fellow who would waste his unhappy reader's time with foolish sayings and nonsense, we have a new editor whose sole purpose in life is to spread German humor. The former editor, whose name shall not be mentioned because, because it is offensive to admirers of the new order, was a lazy, useless misfit who was unworthy of the privilege of having his idle talkings put in print. It is said that the former so-called journalist who wrote this column was often late. So, here comes the joke. He is now the late journalist. (laughs) Joke. That's that's joke in brackets there. It should be explained that whenever the word joke appears in this column, the reader is expected to laugh. (laughs) This way, there will be no need to look for the jokes as they will be plainly marked. Such (laughs) is German efficiency. Heil Hitler. (laughs) I don't know. I've read this article before. It's just always very funny. Orders are hereby given that Der Trumpeter must be read in each home, factory, hotel, or restaurant at six o'clock each evening, New German time. In homes, the head of the family will read Der Trumpeter, and at the appearance of each joke, he will raise his hand, and the entire family will laugh three times in unison. Any person not laughing promptly or loudly enough must be reported to the Gestapo at once. Children under two years of age are the only ones permitted to be excused from sharing in this laughter. It is also decreed that in the future there will only be one kind of laughter, and that is official laughing. (laughs) Any person breaking into foolish giggles or loud guffaws at anything that is not an official joke will be sternly dealt with. They will be lodged in special prison camps where they will be required to laugh together for half an hour on the hour 12 (laughs) times a day. During the rest, their rest periods, they will be engaged in digging holes in order to fill them up again. Thus, their sense of humor will be improved. Joke. <laughs> ha ha ha. <laughs> in order to teach the new German laughter, special practices will be held in each neighborhood for one hour each evening. All citizens must attend. Those too sick to walk must be carried by relatives or friends. At these gatherings, an official German humorist will announce official jokes and count ein, zwei, drei, for the laughter, which must follow. The editor of this column has heard a Canadian joke, which he has consented to give official approval. The joke must be told as follows. Question. Who was that lady I saw you with last night? 
Answer. That lady was my wife. <laughs> Joke. Ha ha ha. Other official jokes will be released for public use from time to time. No jokes other than the official ones will be permitted to be written, told, or depicted in pictures or acting. Thus, the new order brings proper regimentation to the Department of Humor, which must be used sparingly, as Dufour himself never laughs and regards this as a senseless practice that is a waste of time. Um, Stormtroopers and Gestapo agents will stop citizens on the street and ask them to repeat and laugh at the latest official joke. If the citizen has not read this column or has forgotten the joke or forgets to laugh after the joke has been repeated, the citizen will be arrested immediately and his entire family will be penalized. Thus, Germany brings the blessings of true Nazi humor to the lucky Canadian people. Everybody will agree with this statement. Everybody will laugh loudly at all official jokes. Or else. Heil Hitler. (laughs) What do you think, Nick? (laughs) uh, I'm glad I wasn't there. (laughs) And this is, I think, what we mean by the tone being incomprehensible. Absolutely. That's a very funny article. Yes. And but like literally two pages before that, the page. So I translated some of the bits that are all in German. Oh, Um, just a couple of the headlines. And they read Manitoba Falls. Organized groups are banned. It announces a Jewish pogrom. Oh, no. And announces that the Carnegie Library and St. Boniface Cathedral have been burnt down. Oh, my God. So, again, tone tonally, what are they doing? It's a huge mess. We don't know. But even, like, on the street in public, it was kind of a huge mess. Because there are public arrests of city officials, of uh, church members, of clergy. And then, um, if you went to the grain exchange... There was a whole German firing squad set up. Oh, my God. In the center of it. Yeah. But the weirdest part of all this is the photo of it. And in the Grand Exchange, there was a big chalkboard to write the trading prices. And along the chalkboard are three figures. Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito. Oh, jeez. And um, the firing squad shot the effigies of the Axis powers later in the day. Huh. And then if you happen to go down William to the Carnegie Library, this was the main library in Winnipeg at the time, there were books burning in the middle of the street. Right. So there was a full Nazi book burning party. And from what I read, those books were intended to be burned anyway. Oh, they were going to be incinerated no matter what. But it made a much scarier point, I think. Because I know there was an interview from one of the guys who volunteered to be a Nazi that day. And even he had some hesitation about the book burning specifically. It was like, this feels weird. Like, that felt wrong. You're right. Everything else apparently was okay, but the book burnings where we draw the line. <laughs> um, there are also radio station broadcasts throughout the day. So this is one of the things that they reportedly had to um, warn kind of surrounding governments about. So the Americans specifically, but also just in other provinces mm-hmm. to let them know that, hey, we're going to be broadcasting like Hitler's speeches and broadcasting something that says that Winnipeg has been occupied. Don't panic, please. <laughs> Um, and one of the papers actually says, um, that the first indication, so I said before that the, um, that the blackout started at 7am, but according to this paper, um, it sort of started at 5.30. They said the first indication that anything was wrong had come at 5.30 when a taxi carrying a disc jockey on his way to work was halted by a platoon of Nazi stormtroopers who stepped into the road. Three stormtroopers got in and ordered the cabbie to drive to the radio station. They captured it in 15 minutes. Studios and transmitters of all radio stations in the city were taken quickly and without opposition. 
Startled residents turning on their radios were greeted with the news that St. James, St. Boniface, Fort Gary, the Kildonan, St. Vital, and other, under, other outlying municipalities were under attack. So, apparently, first thing in the morning, also, if you had turned on the radio, you would have heard something that about... All of your neighboring cities had fallen to the Nazis, yes. essentially. Yes. Um, I wasn't able to find too much else about the radio broadcast, but there was um, an if-day radio play for school children. Yeah, because they got <laughs> kicked out of school to go listen to it, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So, some schools, I guess, depending on the technology they had in the classrooms, uh, they either kind of took the students um, and played it in class or they sent the students home early to go and listen to this radio play called Swastika Over Canada, which is about what would happen in schools if Nazis invaded. You know what's weird is that War of the Worlds, the uh, Orson Welles adaptation yeah. uh, on the radio was four years before this. Yeah, yeah, so I think that's why they took so much care to notify surrounding yeah, people because, because people killed themselves over war of the worlds because they thought aliens were coming <laughs> yeah so i think they were trying to avoid that but but honestly <laughs> i don't know that they put in they put in the minimum amount of effort they would have to ensure that like americans wouldn't panic and invade them or no one would riot in the streets yeah like i feel like if you were paying attention yes you would know that this was fake but there was definitely like a chance that there were people on this day there is an Ifday documentary yeah. at the Millennium Library, and they interview a guy who was in school at the time Ifday happened. His parents hadn't told them this was coming on. Right. So he went to school thinking everything was fine, until the school janitor pulled him aside and said, behave yourself today, oh. and then left without a word. Oh. Isn't that ominous? That's very ominous. And then there's Nazis all over. Yeah. But Ifday wasn't just a Winnipeg thing, because it went across Manitoba. Because it was a Manitoba fundraiser. Yeah. So um, other cities, including Brandon, um, Portage La Prairie, Verdon, and Russell, um, all held their own if days as well in kind of varying mm -hmm. amounts. Um, Flin Flon actually had a surprisingly big if day. Hmm. Um, they Their town hall and radio station were occupied and they made a kind of altered newspaper similar to the Tribune oh, that was sent, sent to all the homes. Um. Yeah, I think in Brandon as well, it was kind of a whole thing, mm -hmm. which makes sense because that's a bigger city. I'm more surprised by Flin Flon. Yeah. Um, Nipawa um, had a little more low-key day. They dismissed children early to listen to the radio play. Do you think the kids went home and didn't listen to the radio play? Because <laughs> I'm just thinking if I was told, go home, listen to the radio, what I would do is go home and not do that. I mean, their parents might have made them. But, Maybe. But also, it, they were let out at 11.30 to listen to the radio play. Then they had the whole afternoon. Yeah. So, pretty good day. Go have a nap. <laughs> They're children. They're... I mean, if you're in high school, I napped a lot. Okay, yes. Throughout, like, grades 10 to 12, I was big on napping. <laughs> Specifically in class. <laughs> but despite how jam-packed if they seemed like it was a fairly compressed event with a lot going on, it was done by 5.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. That was it. There was a parade down Portage Avenue where 600 members of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and cloak manufacturers marched down carrying signs and encouraging people to buy victory loans. Nice. And the parade ended at Portage and Maine where there is the iconic Bank of Montreal. And on that was a 40-foot map depicting the entire province. And the map had been divided into 45 sections. One section for each of the million dollars we had to raise. Mm -hmm. So for every million sold, they would put a Union Jack on a spot in the map. Right. And if we had covered the whole thing, we would have symbolically freed ourselves and have won. Mm -hmm. 
Important to note, we didn't have the Canadian flag yet. That's why we're doing the Union Jack. Right. So the maple leaf was not a thing at this point. Yeah. That was like the 60s, I, I believe. I mean, maple leaves existed. Well, yeah. <laughs> but the maple leaf flag. Yes. <laughs> so the craziest thing of all is probably that if day worked. Right. They raised $3 million in Winnipeg alone on if day. Yeah. And that map, I think, stayed up for a few days as yeah. this was kind of uncovered. Yeah. But then the next week, it was $24 million, And by the end of the drive, they'd reached $65 million total. So we had surpassed our goal by... A significant amount, by, by like $20 week. million. Yeah. And then uh, Vancouver later bought the surplus Reichmarks to use in their own oh. If Day Style Victory loan. Oh, that's fun. So they didn't all go to waste, at least. But... I'm sure some of those are still poking around, too. Oh, probably. The, the Manitoba Museum, I think, has some. Yeah, I think they do. Um... I mean, I've seen copies of them there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know the the Tribune on the kind of special edition was like offering to sell additional ones that people could keep as souvenirs too. Yeah. There was a full paper later in the day, just to be clear at the time, papers did a morning and an evening edition. Yes. So in the morning, you got the fake one. In the afternoon or evening, you would get the real Tribune. Yeah. Which would have like normal news stories about if day. (laughs) In the world. So you weren't completely in the dark about everything else. Not in German. But like when you talk about if day to people now... It seems horrifying. I know specifically I when I was doing tours would have tour guests from Europe to whom this was just unfathomable that we'd even try this. Right. I mean, I guess if you were somewhere where a Nazi invasion could feasibly actually happen. Or did happen. Or did happen. Yeah. It's weird. But I think the point of it partially was to be horrifying. Yes. As much as it was jokey. Yeah. It was still propaganda in a very real sense of the word. Yes. Yeah, and when we say propaganda, we don't necessarily mean that it's negative in any, in any way, right? But it was certainly meant to convince people. Well, to elicit a response, right? To elicit a response, yeah, and an, an emotional response at yeah. that, right? The thought of what, you know, okay, so maybe maybe this won't happen to Winnipeg. Maybe that's not a thing that's very likely, but there are people on the other side of the world dealing with what you dealt with today. Yeah, yeah and goofy propaganda like this wasn't exactly new by this point. If you look at like really early propaganda for World mm-hmm. War II, the tone tends to be a little more positive. Right. It's more like, we can do this. And yes. then in America, there's lots of goofier ones with weird taglines. There was one that was supposed to promote like carpooling. Okay. And the tagline was, driving alone is like carpooling with Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> but there were like, I did some research into like, propaganda posters basically mm-hmm. and there were sort of five different messages you could generally see there was join the war effort which is sort of the uncle sam we need you right um buy victory loans mm-hmm. which is what if day was be productive mm. so like join a factory go to work yeah make care packages don't be wasteful which is where the carpooling one fits in yes and then watch what you say which oh. is where the slogan loose lips sink ships comes right. from yeah, the don't be wasteful one is interesting. There's there's an ad on If Day in the paper that's something like, if there was an invasion, we wouldn't be able to defeat the Nazis with, like, old cardboard in your house or yeah. something like that. Well, part of the reason they rationed soap is because in the paper, they're like, oh, Canadians are too wasteful with their soap. We don't need to be this right. clean. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stereotype I wouldn't mind uh, leaning into. Yeah. Canadians are too clean. <laughs> <laughs> we need to be dirtier. Yeah. <laughs> but a tone kind of like If Day wasn't uncommon for the time even if it's really weird to us now and yeah sort of goofier portrayals of nazis weren't super weird either yeah one of the interesting things i've been finding looking through like local propaganda is that the size like the physical size of hitler changes oh yeah in depictions like 
often in this early propaganda, he's like a tiny little guy. Kind yeah. of like this mad little tiny man with a silly mustache. Because you're supposed to make fun of him. Right. Um, and it, it almost reminded me a little of like propaganda, like English propaganda against Napoleon. Oh. Right? Where it's yeah. like, oh, our opponent is like this tiny, short little guy. Do you mean guy. where they bullied Napoleon relentlessly in yeah. the papers? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that does sort of change later on. So by like 1942, 43, it sort of shifts to be a little darker because mm-hmm. the war has gone on for years now. Yeah. And I think what's been going on in Germany has been coming out more in the papers. So there's more of like a realistic threat that That's people true can too. figure out. In 1942, I don't know how much about the Holocaust Canadians would have known. Probably not that much. No. And like the Canadian government probably wouldn't have been super eager to talk about it either, given their stance on Jewish immigration, and which to be clear was one Jew is too many. Yes. And our horrible track record on bringing in Jewish refugees yeah. during the Holocaust as well. I'll talk about it in a second, but going back to sort of propaganda and how you would learn about the war, mm-hmm. one of the big ways you would learn about it is actually through movies. Right. And not through film itself, but through the pre-show. Oh, like the newsreels. Newsreels, before. yeah. So basically, if you're going to see a movie in the 1940s, there would be a pre-showing of a newsreel footage, which was basically collected government propaganda to show off what was going on overseas. Mm-hmm. So... Um, at the time, some bigger film companies got into it. So like Paramount and Universal Studios both made their own newsreels, Mm -hmm. which meant they got permission to send a cameraman overseas to the front to film things and then send that back to be edited. In Canada, we actually had, um, the military make their own. Hmm. And, um, That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So one of their first newsreel collections came out in 1942. This would have been shown in theaters across Canada. Mm -hmm. And some of the things they would be depicting were Christmas mail. Christmas mail is unloaded from ships in the postal corps to get into the docks and mail room, and then it's sent to soldiers in the field. So it's basically soldiers getting their Christmas messages. Right. And then um, there's actually one from Winnipeg that came out, one of the early ones, called The Drummer Boy Visit the Former Unit. Unit. So this was uh, Billy Buchanan. He was a drummer boy in the Royal Winnipeg Rifles during the Real Rebellion. Oh, yeah. And he goes to visit his old unit and sees a parade and inspects them as they walk by. Hmm. So the point of all this is to show either the war happening or to basically inspire sort of a sense of Canadian identity or unity. That's interesting, though. Like, that does sound like there's at least some effort made to not show the kind of full horrors of war there. Oh, I would say almost deliberately not, because the first... I have a list of all six of them, and it tends to be, like, it's a factory in operation, or it's someone delivering packages, or it's someone meeting a prominent soldier. So we want to show heroism and, like, positive things that you can do. Yeah. But we don't want to horrify people unnecessarily. So you weren't going to see... I mean, part of that was probably also due to, like, restrictions in seeing films as it was. Like, you couldn't show a dead body in a movie in the 1940s. So you're not going to see, like, live dead bodies if you can't see a fake one. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, we often talk about the Vietnam War as being, like, the first war that was televised, essentially. And so World War II was televised to some extent but not in a very curated way in a very curated way yes that's a good way of putting it and the reason we're talking so much about this is because if day made the newsreels yes which is very exciting and finding out who filmed if day became kind of like a three-day project (laughs) for alex and i um by the way that video is on youtube if people want to go watch it we will be posting it oh yeah we can post it on social yeah yeah it's a very cool video and essentially if you had gone to see a movie shortly after if day had come out you might have seen winnipeg anywhere in north america and because of the promotion they had put out for this, journalists came from all over to watch If Day take place, which meant there were people from uh, Life magazine and uh, the British Path and the Associated Screen News of Canada. And these are all pretty big companies. So um, the Life magazine photographer, William Shrout, 
seems to have taken both photos and videos because I sent you a picture of his camera and it looks like yes. a video camera. Yeah. So it seems like there may have been several people shooting film and that probably somewhere there may exist actually other films as well of If Day. But as far as we know today, the British path is dealing with existing footage. Yeah. And that footage may have been the stuff taken by Lucian Roy. Mm. So he was with the Associated Screen News of Canada and the path often had sort of deals with North American companies to send footage over to them. Right. So that may have been where this comes from. But Roy was from, Win- or not from Winnipeg, but he spent a lot of time here because he was often in town covering stories. Okay. Essentially, the uh, Associated Screen News sent reporters out to different cities to mm-hmm. film things and then send it in so you mm-hmm. could make little newsreel footage right. compilations. And uh, the Tribune was talking about Roy's coverage of If Day for at least a year afterwards, saying that wow. it like broadened Winnipeg's fame considerably, and it likely did. So when the footage released, in- when the footage was released in March. Um, Paramount, Movie Tone, News of the Day, and Universal Studios all included If Day in their packaging. Wow. So it went across North America. And it was also covered in New Zealand. Hmm. So Winnipeg was sort of put on the map in a very major way because of this. Right. And I, like, I don't know that people watching it would have been specifically like, oh, that's in Winnipeg. I know what that is now. Yeah. But like, oh, this weird Canadian city did that thing. This, that fundraising thing. Yeah. yeah. So it was a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that it's not well talked about here specifically in that it's not as well known generally. Yeah. Considering its, its little, popularity at the time. It's a little odd. I don't quite know why why it's not so well known. I mean, to Is be it because it's weird to talk about? It might be because it's weird to talk about. <laughs> I did have to read Heil Hitler about four times there, which felt <laughs> weird. Yeah. Um, It might also be just that people don't know a ton of local history generally. Yeah. I think we, we tend to talk more about broader Canadian history and not so much about, like, Winnipeg-only campaigns. Yeah. But, like, this wasn't just Winnipeg-only by the end That's of it. That's true. This was, like, a North American-wide thing that people saw everywhere. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah. It's a very cool event. Mm-hmm. And I would say, by all accounts, the marketing company did their job. It really does sort of flout how much freedom Canadians did have. Yeah. But also, not every Canadian had that level of freedom. No. Is the important caveat to the end of this episode. That's a super good point. Because actually, um, in February of 1942, that's the exact same month the Canadian government orders um, that Japanese Canadians have to move 100 miles inland from the Pacific coast. Which means that around 21,000 Japanese Canadians had to move from their homes and then had their homes sold without their consent. Yeah. And these were about 75% uh, Canadian citizens. They were then relocated across the country to work sometimes in work camps on the prairies. We also had our own uh, internment camps that would have housed stuff like Italians, Japanese citizens, Germans, and then also Jewish refugees. Oh, jeez. There's a really embarrassing for Canada track record where some Jewish refugees managed to actually slip in. They're called the accidental refugees. They weren't supposed to be allowed in. Canada. They were then placed into the same internment camp. As German military soldiers. No. Or the Nazis. Oh, that's bad. And then people protested. And then they were finally oh, moved to God. a separate camp. And also throughout all of this, residential schools were still in operation. Yeah. And, yeah. But when you talk about If Day, you talk about the marketing goal and the freedom and all of, like, the patriotism. So it's yeah. still, it still works. Yes. And you can tell that everyone involved is a very shrewd sort of businessman. <laughs> yeah. And just, like, the commitment to the event i mean the amount of money they must have put in oh it didn't cost that much it was three thousand dollars what it was all volunteers jeez i think most of the money went to like probably printing reich marks yeah painting tanks and then cleaning tanks 
Yeah, right. And then you getting the uniforms the from Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. But most of it was a volunteer effort. <laughs> so, like, realistically, they made way more than they yeah, spent. Yeah, I mean, they made millions. And I suppose it was funded by these businessmen, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. So what they put in was better than if they had just sort of given it to Victory Bonds themselves. Yeah, essentially. So it is a very cool sort of, I mean, guerrilla marketing is essentially what it is. Yeah. So it's a good example of that and sort of how effective propaganda can be even to this day. Because often, even when I would give tours about If Day, I would talk a little bit about internment camps in Canada. But more of it is about, like, here's what they were trying to do. Here's what they're showing off. Right. Here's how effective they were. Mm-hmm. So it still holds up pretty well. Yeah. I Can you imagine something similar like the, to this happening today? I don't know what you try, what you try and do. Right? Like, because you can't have Nazis invade again. No, no. That's weird. But, like, even just, like, a citywide event to that. Yeah. In that scale. I can't imagine. I guess, yeah, like a government-sanctioned one, not like a citywide protest. Yes, that's true. Yeah. I think the government sanction makes it much, like, harder to imagine. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. Well, let's not, no, let's not get into what we can and can't imagine this government spending money on. <laughs> <laughs> but that's if day. That's If Day, one of the strangest little chapters in Winnipeg history. It is endlessly fascinating. I love talking about it. It's so bizarre. Uh, we'll try and post some of those uh, primary sources yeah. there, the newspaper pages and such. It's all free online, you guys. You can go look it up. If you go to the Tribune website or the archives. You too can spend your evenings reading the Winnipeg <laughs> Tribune archives. Live, a, live the life of Alex and I where we watch old TV and read the newspaper for fun. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Uh, you can follow us on social media at One Great History at Facebook and Instagram. On Twitter, we're the number one great history. And you can see our sources and pictures and even the If Day video at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you.